0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Virgie Tovar about her new book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. Welcome to the show, Virgie. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yes. Um. So I... I write pretty frequently about the issue of weight discrimination, fat phobia, um, how, uh, body size and our culture's attitude towards bigger bodied people affects things like gender, how those things are impacted by race, um, socioeconomics, things like that. And I have my back, my academic background is in sexuality studies. um, So, I did research in that area uh, with a specific focus on how body size affected gender trajectories in women of color. So, I have, and, and right after, I mean, really when I was still in my program, I approached a publisher about potentially working on an anthology about fat women who had stopped dieting and were living their best lives at their current size. And it became an anthology called hot and heavy fierce fat girls on life, love and fashion. And it was a collection of 30 essays and coming off of that, this was 2011. The book came out in 2012 before the book was even published. There was already a really growing interest in the conversation around fat liberation conversation had not even yet pivoted into what we now call body positivity. It was the it was the seedling days, the nascent days sort of, of of that. And so before the book was even out, I was already speaking at universities about this topic. And at that time there were very few um, what we might call experts or something in the field. And there were very few books, very few articles. I mean when I was in graduate school I was discouraged from studying fat women because by my advisor who said that it would be career suicide because no one cared about that issue and, and everything about the issue had already been written. That was pretty much verbatim from our meeting when I told her what I wanted to research. And it was so disappointing. I ended up getting a different advisor, thankfully. Anyway, So coming off of that, I started um, lecturing all over the country on this topic. And then I had the opportunity to write You Have the Right to Remain Fat Uh, in 2018. I just released a new book um, called The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. That came out this year, 2020. And um, I write for Forbes uh, on the issue of Weight discrimination at work and the plus size industry. I'm the contributor for them, and I have a podcast called Rebel Eaters Club, where we sort of examine the cultural relationship to food and the body, and it's sort of a, a fun, food positive um, podcast in a culture that is so terrified of eating and food. So I guess I would say, yeah, like the the totality of my work is it's all under one umbrella, which is ending weight based discrimination. And creating a culture where every single body is seen as deserving of love, respect, and dignity, regardless of size or health status. And then I do kind of all of all of these, th- whatever whatever is in whatever is needed, and I feel inspired to do under that umbrella. I pursue it, and so that's looked like books, and you know, contributorships, and podcasts, and lectures, and sometimes working with individual brands, for example, who are excited to, um, do work in the area of like fat activism or body positivity.
0: I'm really glad that you did not listen to the advisor who said everything about this topic has been written or we would not have this book to talk about today, which clearly shows there's much to say about it. So is that what inspired you to write that? Is is some of this a response to the people who told you that this wasn't something to say?
1: I mean, I guess I I always knew that my advisor was wrong in that sense. And it's just struck me as so odd. And I mean, academia, which is supposed to be this marketplace of ideas that any person would believe that there's a finite amount of knowledge on any topic is sort of absurd. <laughs> so, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, this book was written... More from a place of power and truth-telling, and and as a gift, um, as an offering, I guess. Like maybe I can't presume that people experience it as a gift, but my hope was that it was like, okay, this is this is what I've got, this is what I'm good at, and I'd like to offer it to the public. And I think for sure, um, in some ways, the reactivity part could be around my decision to leave academia and become sort of, um, you know, the public version of that, like a public intellectual, it feels funny giving myself that moniker. It feels like something that other people call you, but you don't get to call yourself or something. But, um, but I do identify as a public intellectual. And so I think, um, for me, this book was really a synthesis of my quite rigorous academic training around theory, and my lived experience, and my my desire to kind of make those things accessible, make those things fun, make those things interesting, and in that way, I mean, I think I think I'm very interested as an ongoing project. I do enjoy destabilizing respectability, so um, I I see this book as kind of this fun. It, it's very very much like my methodology in the sense that I'm like, okay, I'm gonna throw out some high theory um you're it's not going to be experienced as high theory because it's going to be like it's not going to be inscrutable um but it's going to be you know it's going to be theoretical it's going to be complex and then i'm going to talk about it sort of like a valley girl um and i'm going to throw in some likes and i'm going to throw in like a poop reference or a poop joke and then i'm going to bring it all back to this one time i went on a date with a weirdo <laughs> and, and so like you know and i think that's that kind of refusal of rigidity, that refusal of staying in that respectable space and seeing that respectable space is a space that I have to hold down 100% of the time, lest I lose membership to it, which is the attitude of respectability. Um, I just sort of flaunt that. I'm just like, I'm not interested in in that game Um, I do love big fancy words so I'm happy and again for me big fancy words are like big fancy big pieces of jewelry I'm like I love a huge hoop I love enormous earrings if you like see me out and about I may be wearing earrings that are the size of like cake plates right and I sort of have that same relationship to words where you know I think oh this is a really fun you know, like this is a really fun combination of things and it's kind of fancy and that's kind of fun to play with that. But I see it as a, a, it's sort of like there it's it's like on the one hand, these words are really valuable because they convey something very specific. And that's one of the things I love about academia. Um, but uh, but they, they also have kind of an aesthetic playfulness to me because um, I love how they the, how the letters come together. I love how it looks on the page. I love how it can be whatever I want it to be. It doesn't have to be, because traditionally, right, we, you know, those, these really highfalutin academic terms are meant to indicate something about status, something about exclusivity. And they still do. But I think, I think for me, they can also be playful and fun. They can be uh, an entry point for curiosity. And I really welcome that. Um, and So, so yeah, I think the book is in some ways kind of about showing that we don't have to just inhabit one academic space. We can be academic in a moment and then be silly in another moment and then, you know, be irreverent and be, you know, and then go back into that sort of more respectable buttoned up academic parlance or whatever. Um, And then, and then, you know, and then make a weird joke. And and so I, I love that. And I think for me as a fat woman of color, that kind of versatility is, I mean, in a lot of ways, I do see versatility and code switching and disidentification. Those are all in the, in the wheelhouse of marginalized people. Um, so it's not like unusual, but I do think that we, because of the publishing industry's demands, you don't get to see people of color or fat people or, and even to a certain extent, women um, express that kind of versatility, that kind of like that walking between the worlds. We are pigeonholed really quite frequently um, in literature. And there's sort of a a, a, a quote unquote invisible hand, which it isn't right in publishing. You know, it's not an invisible hand, but it's like the demand of the imagined demographic being, you know white women who are heterosexual and who like live in the midwest or are fairly conservative you know um that's the quote unquote invisible hand that pushes a lot of publishing and i think that that, that stifles a lot of creativity and a lot of playfulness and the, and that and that kind of thing um but to sort of sum it up i think the book really is it's a book that is written to um, I mean, the way that I thought of the book was sort of like it was an offering to women and other feminine people to decode things that have been hidden from us so that we can know them and make informed, consensual decisions about what we're doing when we diet, when we, you know, when we do all these things related to, to modifying and shrinking the body Um, and and really understand the history and, and use my own life experience as a lens to that sort of thing.
0: And that really comes across in the book, that you're taking us on a journey from when you once believed your body was magical and belonged to you, to this process of society teaching you otherwise, and then the process of unlearning what society had taught you. And I wonder if you can take us to a really powerful scene you have in the introduction where you're very small, you're about three years old and you just love, you just delight in being in your body because I think that's a wonderful starting place for where your journey was. Um, so can you take us to that?
1: Yeah. So, um, the book sort of starts with a memory of being a little girl and I And I I just, I used to love to come home. I would, I mean, I basically did every single thing with my grandmother. And whenever we would go out or do anything, one of my favorite things to do was I would get home and I would, you know, I would run to the bathroom and I would take off all my clothes and I would run back out and then I would jiggle. I loved the sensation of my jiggly body. And I remember feeling like my I'm actually like jiggling my arms right now and I can sort of <laughs> I can I can um, imagine I can sort of channel that that like little four-year-old Virgie that um, sense because, memory. yes totally because you know when you like we all have fat uh, and so well, most of us have like you know have a good amount of fat deposits like in our Arms and our butts and our thighs and and maybe our cheeks and our chins and when we move right when we kind of undulate that fat moves and I remember thinking it moved like the water and I remember thinking it was magic and I just remember kind of reveling in like the how good it felt like it was I mean I just I mean when you're a child you just have such a direct line to the sensation of pleasure and it's so corporeal it's not. I mean, certainly the the corporeal, the chemical release affects your brain, but it's it's not an intellectual process. Um, and so, I think you know um, that feeling that like my fatness was kind of this unique superpower thing that allowed me to move my body in this really funny sort of fun special way. And then my grandmother always enjoyed my wit- my jiggle shows. Um, she, I just remember her laughter. She just found it so funny that I would do these things. (laughs) And and so there was a lot of like, you know, love around me. so I think it had this, it had this, you know, this beautiful, there's this beautiful memory attached because it was this thing that I wanted to do. And it also brought other people who I love a lot of joy. And, um, and, and, and an interesting note that, you know, this didn't make it into the book, um, but an interesting note about that moment is that I had blocked out that moment for the entire duration of my 20 years spent dieting and focused on weight loss. Um, and I only, I only just remembered it a few years ago when I was several years into my own liberation recovery journey. And I think about how many memories we have to suppress in order to be, and like I, you know, right, like that, that suppression was about the fact that it did not, it created dissonance um, between everything I had learned from my culture that something was wrong with my body and that I should try to become a thin person by any means necessary. That commitment was dissonant with that remembering. And so my brain was just in order to sort of survive and make sense and move forward. It just discarded that temporarily. And so it was only in my liberation experience that it was safe for that memory um, to resurface.
0: And you say in the book that, that the relationship to your body, that, that beautiful relationship that you had when you were so small and that yet you lost that memory of was maybe in part because, your your relationship to your body was replaced with one toxic idea. And you say that idea was that your body was wrong. And you say in the book that this idea that your body was wrong would threaten your happiness and your health for nearly two decades. And for you, it's a universal story. You say that that's not a unique story, that it's the story of women's lives in America. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know... Depending on who you are, um, okay. So I mean, to begin with, right? Like we live in a culture of sexism where women and th- the feminine, feminine people, all things feminine, are um, you know we're considered second class citizens. And and you know I think right, like I wrote, this, it's kind of it's kind of unbelievable um, <laughs> to realize this, but this book was written before Trump got elected. And uh, at that time we were still as a cult, I don't know if you were, I mean, you probably do remember, but at that time we were in a we were sort of in this like cultural amnesia moment. I think we were riding the high of Obama and thinking that our future was so bright, there was nothing that could stop us now as a culture. And and people had for a very long time accepted the idea that sexism was dead. And so there's a lot of, um, it's funny reading the book now and you, and I can tell from reading it that I was trying to convince people who were experiencing sexism that they were in fact experiencing sexism and then Trump gets elected. And and then it just like, you know, I think there was a sentiment at that time that we were post-sexism, um, even among, I mean, even among women who are in spaces and like women who maybe identify. like. Who you'd presume would would be the sort of person who would have that critique? I think a lot of those women didn't have that critique, um, and so um, or or they just sort of believed that like we, that you know anybody who was still quote unquote harping on feminism was sort of a, a weird um, you know tin like foil hat tin hat wearing you know conspiracy theorist type. <laughs> and so and the, and then, sort of Trump became the body of evidence that no we were nowhere near uh post sexism um or anything like that, and so i that that's kind of like the the very that's like i guess to begin that's how i want to begin the answer to that question, and then the next part um really is about you know, even if you're not a fat person, if you are a woman or you're socialized female, you part, part of that gendered socialization is the idea of inferiority. And inferiority maps really well onto the, the felt sense of wrongness. Um, and so, um, right, because like if women didn't feel inferior or didn't have a sense of wrongness, we would not um, put up with, what the, this, the circumstances we've inherited. We would not put up with the sexism we said. We would not put up with rape culture. We would not put up with this. And so it's very important in, in, for any marginalized group, um, there has to be that shame education because the shame keeps the in, anger t- turned inward. Um, a, a, a colleague um, who wrote a book called Dietland named Saray Walker once pointed out to me really eloquently that shame is anger turned inward. And so for marginalized people, there's a lot of mechanisms in our culture that keep that shame inwardly focused because, you know, because that is is one of the most potent ways to keep a person from organizing. It's one of the most potent ways to keep a person disembodied um, it's a, it's a really potent way to keep people kind of like hyper focused on relatively speaking irrelevant things. Um, and so, um, I, and I, I use the example in the book of kind of like, if you think about the fact that many, 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 many women, so many women are dissatisfied with their body because, because of size, because of hair color, because of, acne because of aging because of like, you know, scars or any number of things, right? Like um, when, like, so, but like, but specifically around the issue of food um, I, I use the metaphor of, of like the size of a plate and how I'm like, you know, under diet culture, which we all live under women's lives are allowed to be as big as our plate is like, that's our entire world. Um, because if you are someone who is one of like the multiple millions of people who are dieting chronically, um, dieting is, is like intellectually speaking, it's kind of a full-time job, right? Because like, first of all, you're hungry, um, a lot of the time, like you're either physically hungry, like you actually feel hungry, um, biologically hungry, uh, Or you kind of know that you're not allowed to eat whatever you want, whenever you want. So there's sort of a sort of like a a more existential kind of a hunger. So even when you're physically not hungry or you feel full or something like that, you still kind of know that you're limited and that creates sort of a bigger sense of hunger. Um, And hunger, generally speaking, whether it's biological or it's felt um, creates particular outcomes. It creates a very, and there's research around this, right? Like it creates short term thinking pretty much consistently, because you're kind of in survival mode. Um, Like food is one of the most important ways the bodies get the nutrition, um, the fuel that we need, our brains need, our bodies need to function. And so when you're hungry, again, either biologically or a felt sense of hunger, um, you're stuck in short term thinking. Um, Anybody who knows anything politically, right, like, knows that um, organizing and those kinds of things require long-term thinking, they require vision, they require energy. Um, And so, you know, um, anyway, uh, all that to say, like, in the book, I say, right, I think that we are in an epidemic of female sadness Um, I would probably amend female and just say feminine uh, at this point. Like I do think that we're in an epidemic where women generally speaking across the globe are underwhelmed by the world, but by the options we're given um, are underwhelmed by the spaces we're allowed to inhabit the limits that are built into our culture. Um, I mean, certainly if you date men, you are underwhelmed romantically Um, and like, and, and I think it's just like, it's just kind of watching all that happen and seeing how food and body dissatisfaction play into that. And I guess I'll end my answer by, and I quoted Naomi Wolf, um, in the book, but really sort of like how, um, dieting is one of the most powerful political sedatives in history. Um, and so I do think that like, there's a particular war waged, against women's bodies. And one of the most powerful ways in which that war is waged is through diet culture, um, because diet culture erodes at the body and the spirit of whoever is participating in it.
0: And one of the things you also talk about that it does is it creates what you call uh, minority stress which is a set of physiological negative outcomes from the discrimination, cruelty, and social ostracization over a lifetime that manifest in the body as suppressed immunity, shortened lifespan, and decreased heart health, things that doctors have attributed to an increased body weight, but you reattribute to the minority stress and the effect of living in this oppression. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, minority stress is so interesting. And it's sort of a body of of research that I came upon. Um, I don't even know, it might have been in grad school, it might have been after, but it's so compelling. And it's so powerful. And it really what I love about it is, you know, it it's it really, really talks about the physiological effects of ongoing discrimination. And it looks at this around race, around sexuality, around body size. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. So, uh, but to go back to sort of the, the the reattribution part, I think what's difficult is a lot of people um, don't, right? Like there's this sort of idea that fat people live shorter and less healthy lives. And, and in general, the medical um, field attributes that to, the, to higher weight, Um, the problem of course is the, the, the massive sort of confounding factor of minority stress. Um, so as you sort of mentioned, um, yeah, like there's, there are connections between minority stress and all kinds of things. Um, so, uh, certainly shortened life expectancy, um, within uh, like another finding within minority stress theory is, um, that like low birth weight in the black community is attributed to racism and minorities. to like essentially the ongoing stress of being a black person in America is so intense that it's enough that it like that it actually affects the weight of children um when they're born. Um, and those kinds of things. So, so just to give to to sort of shed light on that, right? like when you're when you're a fat person um, in the United States where there is virulent fat phobia, um, and just to define it, fat phobia is a form of dis- discrimination or bigotry that positions fat people as inferior intellectually, uh, morally, um, physically, right. In every imaginable way. Um, and there, there are real impacts around this. So like for instance, um, fat women make anywhere between 9,000 and $19,000 less per year than their thin counterparts. Um, fat women are fat people generally, but I know the statistic for fat women um, are less likely to be taken seriously as a PhD candidate. Um, they're less likely to be taken seriously for a promotion um, in the medical field or the medical world uh, Fat people are seen as non-compliant patients. Um, and certainly in the, in the realm of romance, um, there is it, certainly fat people are considered not desirable as long term mates. Um, I will point out though that there's some research that shows that fat and thin women have, you know, parity when it comes to the number of sexual partners they have, but they don't have the same number of romantic relationships as thin women have. Um, and so, right, like that, that all of those individual pieces all build a story where the fat person the fat woman let's say specifically um is sort of um you know a person set, uh, sort of set apart from her own society um like she can't participate in the more meaningful parts of our society right like i mean a perfect example is the way that um you know until recently fat women could not access clothing um, for a lot of, for a lot of things, right? Like, I mean, if you ask any plus size woman, woman, what it's like to shop for the prom, if she even got invited to ask to the prom, right? Um, and then ask her what it's like to have to shop for a bridesmaids dress, ask her what it's like to shop for a wedding dress, ask her what it's like to shop for an interview at a big firm, Ask her what it's like to shop for a special occasion and you know you will you will not meet a plus-size woman who has not told you that it is extraordinarily difficult, emotionally draining and, and at times impossible. Um, I remember speaking to a woman who um, had uh, you know was going to a wedding and it was in another country and uh, she had packed a dress, the dress that she was going to wear as a guest to the wedding and uh and then on the flight over the airline lost her luggage and so she had no dress and she could not there was nothing she could buy in her size where she was going and she also um she felt too ashamed to go in an outfit that was that was like that was more casual to this wedding and so she did not go to the wedding and uh so but again this paints a picture, like if you don't have any, if, if like, if your society <laughs> doesn't make clothes for you to go to a prom, one of the most important sign, like signifiers of gender in our culture to get married again, another massive signifier of like participation in our culture. Like, you know, I mean, think about like even maternity wear, right? Like if your culture doesn't make clothes for you to show up to those important moments, your culture is essentially telling you that it doesn't have room for you in those moments. And like what those moments mean, what those moments are tantamount to is citizenship, okay? So what is it like to live in a culture that doesn't claim you as one of its own? Um, This is extraordinarily stressful. And so I think for, um, right, and and, and what does it, I mean, and I, I often use the metaphor of like what it feels like when your family rejects you what it feels like when your family doesn't want to claim you. Um, there are many people, um, certainly queer people and trans people, I think of, in particular, who have had that experience. Um, but for those folks who like haven't had that experience, imagine what that might feel like to um, have your parents abdicate paternity over you. <laughs> um, and that's a little bit like on, on a grander scale. That is what happens when you're a fat person in this society. So, um, imagine the emotion of like, okay, this family, the only family I've ever known, um, doesn't want to claim me as one of its own. What might that feel like in your heart, in your spirit? Um, and, and like, yeah, I think most people can access that that experience would be heartbreaking. And heartbreak has physiological impacts. Imagine that, that, that rejection being spread over a lifetime. Um, and I just, I think like, like I think about, you know, even infants who are rejected by their family, some of them die. Um, you know, and it's like, I mean, that is so impactful to really realize. So what's happening in our culture is is essentially right. Like, and I feel like it's, it's totally intuitive, even though it's, you know, it's, I think it's sometimes hard to, there's a lot of science behind it, but it's rather intuitive when you think about, what does it feel like to feel like you're rejected 100% of the time in your body? And like, you have to recognize that, like, of course, that affects your heart. Of course, that affects your spirit. Of course, that affects your mental health. Of course, it affects your immune system. These are basic things that a human being needs, right? Um, Like a human being needs to feel loved and needs to feel like they belong. And and so um, fat phobia is is kind of that, you know, and so I I do think that minority stress, um, or, you know, whatever you want to call the physiological side of being rejected by your society. um, I do think that's a massive confounding factor when we're attempting to understand the health of fat people.
0: And that's a pervasive theme throughout the book, that there's this categorical rejection, but You can earn acceptance through doing certain things. And you talk about that quite a bit in chapter three about bootstrapping, where the society keeps putting back on you the, the responsibility for doing certain things so you won't be rejected anymore. And you say it's the idea that if you don't have something, it's because you didn't want it badly enough or you didn't try hard enough. And there isn't much room in that philosophy for a serious consideration of justice or the historical unfairness in this narrative. Um, can you talk more about specifically bootstrapping in your grandparents narrative and in the heritage that you were you were raised with and and how that perhaps affected you in for a while believing in this idea that you could bootstrap yourself into this acceptance of the larger cultures' uh, way of seeing and that that would actually take you further away from your own acceptance of yourself.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, there's so many themes there. I mean, I just sort of, to begin with a few things that are important to point out. Um, Number one, um, fat people are seen as failed thin people, which is completely erroneous. There's no, there's, it just isn't a real thing, right? Like, If you are a fat person, you are likely a fat person because genetically you were, you're a fat person, right? Like, um, people who are thin are largely thin because of genetics. Um, you know, so it's just, it's just kind of, it's always odd to me. And I mean, I, I fully bought it because this is what diet culture is selling us. The idea that you can fundamentally turn a fat person into a thin person. It's important to point out that there's absolutely literally zero zero like data that substantiate that claim um so you know and and the statistic that i always quote and often think of is the fact that the likelihood of someone who is classified as like quote-unquote overweight or obese becoming a quote-unquote normal weight is less than one percent i think it's something like 0.7 percent um now, I mean, most, even a logical person, but certainly I would argue somebody who's been primed in the sciences, <laughs> the physical sciences, um, or any statistic would probably say bad idea to pursue anything that has a return rate of 0.7%. Um, certainly, the level of money, investment, mental anguish, suffering, hours committed to dieting, like, you know, there certainly is not uh, a logical or, um, or a smart or a pragmatic um, move considering that statistic. So I think it's important to recognize like a lot of thin people still think, and there's this, there's this even like this image that I think finds so troubling of like the thin person who lives inside of you, who's dying to get out. Um, like how creepy is that? There is no thin person inside of me. I was never a thin person. I will never be a thin person unless I get some kind of really intense disease that eats away at all of my body, including my bones, my hair, and my fat. Yes. Um so like there there is no reality in which I am not a fat person. Um and but I did not know that, right? Um because like first of all that that information, that data is not available. And it's, I would say it's actively, unfortunately, suppressed within the realms that that are allegedly most empirically driven. It's suppressed within academia, it's certainly suppressed within the medical field. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, like the information is there. Um, but, uh, but the other important thing that I wanted to point out was, so. I mean, so number one, the idea that a, that a fat person is a failed thin person is false. Um, a fat person is just a fat person. Uh, like a fat person is a fat person, right? Like they're, they're like they're they're you know our bodies are just like this is how we're built, right? We're part we're like a legitimate a historical um, presence, right? Like we're we're a legitimate body in the realm of body diversity. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was how diet culture is sort of the it's like the food and the body uh, manifestation of neoliberalism. Um, like we practice with our with our economics, we practice neoliberalism, which is a particularly brutal um, for like in the West, certainly our neoliberalism is, is very is quite brutal compared to other countries in the West. Um, and the whole idea of neoliberalism is like, the, you know, the unit of the individual becomes the most important determinant the individual becomes the most important unit in determining the trajectory of that of that person's life um in, in, and and we call that bootstrapping right the idea that you can pick yourself up pick yourself up by the bootstraps and anybody can become anything right and i think like an example of that is just rem- i remember being a little girl in elementary school and one of the songs that we were taught was anyone can grow up you can grow up to be president and it was like this idea that any single human American who was born a U.S. citizen, um, even in like the random, se- like, you know, insulated suburbs where I grew up, like could become president. And and it's just kind of this like fascinating, totally creepy um, American self-mythologizing that I find really kind of humorous. I mean, it's super, it's super terrible, right? Like, um, we have definitely suffered many things because of the of the weird self-ethologizing of the United States. Um, but I just think it's so funny. Right. Because I think there is this this real disassociation between the way that America as a nation, the United States thinks of itself and the, the reality <laughs> on the ground. Um, and and I, I don't I don't know that most people in the U.S. sort of can actually recognize that there's uh, there's like a bifurcation there that's very real. Um anyway, uh all that to say, um bootstrapping, neoliberalism, um you know, we understand these things as economic concepts, but in actuality, we're doing them when we diet. Um so the idea is, well, the way the sort of like the the proposition that diet culture puts forth is, you know, do you want love, respect, dignity, access to friendships and meaningful romantic relationships? Well, if you're a woman, the way that you do that is you undertake a lifelong experience of pseudo and at times full starvation. Um, and so, right, like with that, with that, right, like at the end of the day, um, love, dignity, respect, access to certain important cultural moments should not be conditional upon your body size. That's fairly obvious to anybody that, you know, but our culture isn't set up that way. Um, why? Because like, again, we have, we have like a particularly brutal And others have called it, and I think it's accurate to call it plantation capitalism, Um, you know, and so anyway, uh, and and like plantation capitalism, brutal, this brutal form of capitalism cannot merely exist in the economic, in the economic realm, right? Like, because this thing has to be substantiated in all of the realms of our lives, why? Because it doesn't make sense. It's horribly unjust and it leads to like awful, awful outcomes of inequality. Um, and so, um, anything that's highly immoral is typically also highly illogical. Um, so how do you, how do you get an entire population to get behind an, e- a both immoral and illogical status quo um, you have to get them to enlist in that ideology in every arena of their lives. So we do it with economics. You know, we do it with our bodies through diet culture. We do it romantically through like, you know, how hot is your partner on a scale from one to 10? We do it in the carceral state. Um, we, it's like everything I do see, like all of I see diet culture as kind of like the gendered food body control side of the carceral state of plantation capitalism, et cetera. Um, The way that that looked in my life, like if you're, and and to speak specifically to the concept of bootstrapping, which comes from the Horatio Alger, like the immigrant story, right? Um, uh, I was raised by my mother's parents, my grandparents um, who both immigrated from Mexico Um, And I think for many immigrants to the United States, like it is that siren song of you can, you know, you can escape wherever you came from and you can come here and be anything you want to be. There's nothing that's going to stop you from becoming the CEO of whatever, right? Um, And so, bootstrapping in a lot of ways is built into the immigrant narrative. And my grandparents, as people who immigrated to the United States in the 50s, sort of in the heyday right like I mean um, at that time the United States was the richest country in the world and it was like an and, and the individual right like in general generally speaking like people had more access to class jumping into um, the middle class than you know than I think than any other country at that time um and so uh, anyway um like my my grandparents heated, that that siren song and they took it on as kind of like almost like a religion and so I grew and and like and and the bootstrapping stories were particularly really strong in my family um like my my grandmother and grandfather came to the United States with and the story goes like they came with two dollars in their pockets and now they have like you know, two cars and a son and two kids and a dog and a cat and they own a home. And like, you know, they have enough money left over to go out after church to have food and to have dinner, right. Have like a restaurant experience and sh- sort of show off their, their disposable income to the neighbors and their extended family members and things like that. So, um, so like their accomplishments were a major source of pride rightfully. So I would argue um, but it certainly came with an attendant um, American ideology that absolutely impacted me, not only in how I saw my role um, academically and economically and my own possibility around those things as, as individual endeavors, but it also mapped onto weight loss, right? It was like, well, there's a problem. I'm fat. Um, at that time, that's what I believed, right? there's a problem. I was taught that um, primarily by other straight boys. Um, And so I was taught that I have this problem. I was taught that um, it was so right, like, the problem is that I'm fat. the problem and and like, in addition to that, I am being abused because I'm fat. Um, And so the way to end the abuse and the problem is to become thin, clear, obvious, simple, like, you know, right, like, just become a thin person. And the diet industry slash all of society is here to tell you, how simple it is to just become thin. You just got to eat less and move more. And so I took that lie. I mean, it complete, that's a total lie, by the way. <laughs> like, I mean, certainly, um, certainly if you calorically deprive and you move and you move enough, um, you can change your weight. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but longitudinally, um, it just doesn't pan out, right? Because generally speaking, um, you're working against your own biology, um, over time, dieting always, dieting is always progressive because your body is always attempting to adapt to keep you at your set weight, like the weight that you, the weight, the, and set weight is like the, the range in which your body, the the range of weight in which your body functions best. Um, so generally speaking, people who are undertaking, um, weight loss, they are attempting to, work against their set points. Um, and your body just doesn't like that. So it's just going to keep fighting you and it'll keep adapting, right? It's like, okay, you're not giving me this. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to make more fat, um, uh, to get us to that weight that we want to be at, um, with fewer calories. Um, and it'll keep doing that. It'll keep like, it's kind it's really fantastic. It's, It's adaptive and beautiful and a bit sneaky and I love it. Um, but yeah, so dieting is already always progressive. Um, so you're already always sort of fighting against um your body's own inclination. And and just to be clear, your body experiences dieting as you know, you being put into survival mode. So it's gonna do whatever it has to do to survive. Um back to bootstrapping. So <laughs> anyway, uh right. I I undertook this like simple quote unquote advice. Um, but of course, I'm not surprisingly. Now I realize of course I never stopped being a fat person. I certainly went through starvation periods. I certainly went through periods where I was exercising obsessively multiple hours a day, 7 days a week. Um and no matter what, I never I was never going to become a thin person and I never did become a thin person. Um, And I experienced that as failure, not as the success of my body thriving and surviving and being itself against all odds. I experienced it as failure because that was how I was taught to experience it. Um, I think the last thing I want to say about it is, it's kind of in the romantic realm. um, One of the most hurtful and integral parts of, of how I was taught that phobia was the idea that if I was fat, that no one would ever love me or marry me. And as someone who, has always really, you know, was always, as a child, I, I deeply always wanted to be, like, married. I wanted to have my person. Um, I've always been a little bit of, like, I've always been, like, a romantic. And so the idea of never having access to that was tantamount to, like, misery, right? It was in some some form of, like, small spiritual death. Um and given those terms, right, you either get to be, you know, you, you can stay fat and experience a, a spiritual death, or you can work your little ass off to try and get that thing. You're going to, you're going to um, you're gonna pick the, you're going to pick the latter. Um, so uh, I think for me, I saw each pound that I was attempting to shed as one step closer to that romantic connection that I had always dreamed of and um and I think right like that that bootstrapping becomes so evident in that story where it's like you know everyone deserves access to love um (laughs) really and and our and our culture is set up so unjustly um and and at the end of the day right um we all deserve love, dignity, respect. We all deserve medical care. We all deserve a, a, like a roof over our head. We all deserve food in our bellies. Those are basic things that any human being needs. Um, you should not have to do anything. You should not have to earn or work or do anything to have access to the basic things that human beings need. Those are things that, that the state should be providing for you, in my opinion. And uh, like, I mean, certainly materially, the state should be providing you those things. And and the culture should not be doing things socially in order to create um, lack for so many people. And I do see social injustice as sort of this, like, it's like this false hoarding system um, where there is enough for everybody. Like, think about love and dignity and respect. These are not, these are infinite resources. These are not finite resources. And yet, again, because of the brutality of our culture, going back to the plantation capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it even impacts like infinite resources. It even impacts these kinds of more human emotional things um, that don't require limits. And that's really, I mean, it's, it's really quite overwhelmingly depressing and unfortunate when you kind of, when you kind of look at the culture and you can truly see it as that.
0: And you talk about that, Uh, quite a bit in in Chapter 8, that after you'd examined these ideologies and how they were really all working together to create this ideology of oppression, and you talk about how ideologies of oppression are much more slippery than rights because it's impossible to legislate against an ideology, and you reach the point where you realize that you don't want or need to change your body. What you need to change is the way that you felt about it. And you realize that acceptance is not the desired outcome here, because acceptance means, in effect, getting the blessing of this dominant culture that has rejected you, has internalized inferiority that perpetuates sexism. Instead, what you want is freedom. And one of the realizations you have is that people accept the unacceptable when they believe there is no alternative. In the few minutes that we have left, when you're Giving your message of you have the right to remain fat. Do you want to present how people can reach that alternative?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what's so inspiring, actually, I think like this is this is actually the what's really exciting is there's an infinite number of ways that you can practice that freedom. um That and the path looks different for different kinds of people, and and I mean I, that that's what's so great, right? Like I was okay, so. To be clear, right, just to get down to brass tacks, like, I learned this freedom. I learned you have the right to remain fat from activists. And I'll talk about that. And they taught me a very specific lineage, a very specific sort of methodology that comes from a history. But what's fantastic is that that's not the only path to this. Whatever I'm going to outline as my own path, it's not the only path there's a million potential paths freedom is a creative endeavor that's what's so fantastic right it's like in the same way that if I were like create an image paint a picture um you could paint a trillion different things right you might not you might even say I actually don't want to paint a picture I actually prefer to make like this origami whale or this origami swan or something like that you know like, or actually, I don't see paper in that way. I actually want to turn this paper into a hat, or I actually want to use this paper. I mean, like, right? Like, and that's what's so fantastic is like, there is no one path to freedom and it is a creative pursuit. But for me, um, and this might be useful for others, um, is, you know, it really did start with understanding the history of fat phobia, um, the history of diet culture, which is just like, horrible right like the history of diet culture is just is, it's quite bad um it, it has connections with racism sexism you know colonialism ableism and on and on and on right so it's not a great thing and and for me that gathering that knowledge really began the intellectual movement from oh this is good for me and this is helping me to oh my god this is like a massive pile of poop garbage Um, and that transition, again, intellectual, right? Like that was powerful. It didn't mean, it didn't undo every single thing I'd experienced, but transitioning from this thing is great to this thing is harming me is a very powerful intervention. Um, and I learned that from other people. And then I began the, the process of accumulating tools around like, well, if this isn't working and my whole life isn't going to be about becoming thin, well, what is my life going to be about? And what might that look like? Um, So okay, um, I'm no longer gonna try to be thin. So one of the first things I maybe could do is throw away my scale, right? I don't need that anymore. My body's just going to do what it wants to do. And I'm going to be okay with that. Number one. Next thing, I'm going to get rid of all my diet stuff. Like I don't need that low calorie blah, blah, blah thing that I never liked in the first place. Just get rid of that, right? Then I'm like, well, no more clothes that doesn't fit me because one of the things that we're taught as socializes women is that we should buy very small clothing and that we should buy clothes that doesn't fit. And that is too tight and that we should aspire to be a smaller size. And ideally, you know, we should have, we should all want to be a size two, certainly no double digits. Um, Chuck that just like, and then get rid of anything in your closet that doesn't feel comfortable, doesn't fit you. That's another tool. Just like, okay, What's next? Well, okay, we got we got rid of the stuff that's in our house. Uh, no more no more stuff we don't like in the fridge. No more scale. No more tiny clothes. Okay, that's that's just my house. I can do that in a few hours. Next is my community. Okay, um, what am I going to start telling my friends who are all super into dieting? Um, gotta have something to say to them. So. How do we, how do we like map out a script to tell them, Hey, guess what? I'm no longer doing this thing. Um, as long as you respect me, I'll respect you. I'm not talking about dieting anymore. And if you bring it up in a conversation, I'm going to shut it down. Um, and then I'm going to start with that. Then it's like, all right, romantically. Um, do I have a partner who's on board with my journey? Because if not, um, they're either going to have to go or they're going to have to join that journey with me. Um, and to be supportive of me if I'm dating, right? Like all of a sudden I now have an expectation that I'm not going to be with anybody who needs to be with somebody who's a thin person because, or, you know, who needs, who needs a body of a certain size because not only is that sexism, um, and like totally unacceptable, it's also just not in line with how I live my life anymore. Um, and then, right, how about family? What am I going to tell the family members who are constantly talking about weight? Um, how am I going to decide what events I want to go to and what events I, I don't want to go to? How am I going to create a self-care plan for when those moments happen where I get triggered? Um, and it kind of goes from there. And I think what's great is, you know, it's, and and and, um, and again, like that process is is like those two things that I just outlined that could take a few weeks, that could take a few years, there is no, there is kind of, I I think for a lot of people, they're demoralized that they can't just get off the train, right? They're on the diet train, they realize it's not going to a destination they like, and they just want to jump off. And I completely understand that who wants to stay on a train that's going to pooplandia, no one. Um, I understand. But like, the thing is, right, what's beautiful about this process and the lengthiness of it is because like we all have trauma, we all have pain, diet, culture, fat phobia, those things create trauma. And, and like, in a lot of ways, even though we maybe can't jump off the train as quickly as we want, right? Like um, the, the process of healing is a process that is anti-capitalist, it is um, anti-sexism. It's, it's, it's like it's anti-racist, right? Because what it's doing is it's reversing the, the concept of like settler, colonial, white supremacist, oppressive time, right? Like, a, like colonial time, settler time, oppressive time, thin time, whatever you want to call it. That's all about going as quickly as possible to get results as quickly as possible. That's capitalism, okay? And that's what diet culture is. Um, this process of healing is literally undoing that timeline. It's saying like the body takes the time that it needs to heal um a heart wound, which is what trauma is. it's a it's a wound of the heart. um it, if you imagine it like a physical wound, it, it's actually really useful, right? So I, I might say like it, it's helpful when I work with people to sort of say like okay, how, how impacted do you feel by fat phobia on a scale from one to 10 in terms of the pain and the trauma? And if they say, you know, a 10 or a nine or something like that, I'm like, okay, right. So the equivalent physically would be that you have been in a horrible car accident. One of those like one, 1% car accidents where there's a lot of damage. Um, you survive the damage because your body is strong and your spirit is strong. So that's great. But It's going to take a long time to rehabilitate if you have crushed bones and like all this kinds of stuff, right? Like that, that, that is the heart has, right? Like we can't see our heart. We can't see our spirit, but, um, right. The trauma is like, it's useful to have like a physical, um, accompaniment visually when you're thinking about it, because a lot of us have a lot of trauma, um, that we're just carrying around, and that, that process of healing, is going to take the time that it's going to take. Um, and so uh, the last thing I'm going to say is, I think what's beautiful, and I'm like 10 years-ish uh, into my recovery, for, like my decision to stop dieting and to just recuperate my relationship to my body and to food. Um, and that, I am just starting to experience the corporeal, sort of cellular level healing that I wanted all all those years ago. And it just takes how long it takes as long as it takes. And there's all these beautiful steps along the way. Um, But now I'm in the stage where, um, you know, I went from kind of like faking it till I made it right, like where I would just like, okay, I'm going to wear clothes that where I'm not hiding anymore, I'm gonna like defend my body, I'm going to get in people's faces if they're fat phobic, I'm going to yell at my doctor if they don't respect my desire not to be weighed. <laughs> um, and all of that stuff is really valuable. And, and, and all of that sort of was like, very felt very um, intellectual to me. And then now I'm now I'm just coming into the phase where I'm like, Oh, my God, I'm grieving. I'm sad. I'm sad that I lost all those years. I'm sad that I maybe hurt other people who I should have been helping them leave diet culture. But I was so, I was so trapped by it myself. Um, and all of those things, like I'm just kind of feeling that grief, which is something that's deeply embodied. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, anyway, I think, I think I'm going to end there. (laughs)
0: That's a great place to end. And I think it um, brings us to one of my favorite lines from the book, which is where I will end, which is when you said that freedom is when you have no framework for your body as a source of failure. And I I love that sentence in the book. And so I wanted to make sure listeners uh, got to hear it. It has been great talking with you today, Virgie. Before we wrap, can you tell us a bit about the project that you're working on now?
1: Um, so, uh, the book that came out recently is called the self-love revolution, radical body positivity for girls of color. You can get, um, you have the right to remain fat and the self-love revolution pretty much wherever books are sold. Um, and I'm currently working on the second season of rebel eaters club, um, rebel eaters club. So, so season one is available right now. Um, you can listen to the whole season uh via Apple or Spotify or Stitcher. And then I think we're launching season two in fall. Um, and that's what's going on for me. Oh, and then if, if you want to find me, I'm uh on Instagram at Virgitovar, V-I-R-G-I-E, T-O-V-A-R, um, or vergitovar.com.
0: Burjee Tovar, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.